Well, good evening again, everybody. Uh, I appreciate you all so much for, for letting me come back. I, I, I appreciate it very, very much. And I appreciate the, the hospitality this afternoon for, for you all allowing me to, to stay. And, and I, I can't thank you enough. I really do appreciate it. And I hope, uh, I hope that the lesson this evening can uh, be at least a, a form of repayment in a way, I guess, for as nice as you all have uh, been to me today. I can't thank you enough, and I really do mean it. So i say it one more time. Thank you, and you'll probably hear me say it again. And so for our lesson this evening, uh, if you want to get your Bibles and turn over to the book of chapter, uh, the book of chapter, the book of Psalms, chapter 73. The book of Psalms and in chapter 73. And as you're turning over there, just a little bit of a recap. This morning we spent some time talking about the, the aim of our charge and how as Christians, we talked about Paul's letter to 1 Timothy, how he wanted Timothy to recall his aim as he was going forth to these Christians in Ephesus to teach them about God's truth. And how in doing so, it was important to remember that if we're going to try to keep our aim as love, that in loving God and loving our neighbor, it needs to come from a heart that is pure, a conscience that is good, and a faith that is sincere, a faith that is real and genuine. And so if you kind of want to stay with this theme, if you will, and the title for the first sermon was The Aim of Our Charge. And the title for this lesson tonight is When the Advance Slows. Now, I told you I liked history. I don't know if I told you I liked military history very, very much. I love it, especially right around the Civil War. And whenever you watch any kind of war movie or you read about any conflict, whenever the rally speech is given, right, you can kind of think of that as this morning, what our aim is, what our goal is in this spiritual fight. It never fails in any combat scenario. If you look back in history, whenever the order to charge is given, it never fails that there's a possibility for the advance, they call it, to slow. There's a possibility that when that command to go forth and do something is given, there's always the possibility that the advance is going to stall. You know, one thing, I can't remember which general said this, but they said there's only one thing that's going to go according to plan, and that is that nothing is going to go according to plan. You know, in history, whenever great big battles are planned, whenever great big anythings are planned, maybe it's just a family trip, you can have it all laid out, but it never fails that something goes wrong, doesn't it? You get a flat tire, you plan a trip, maybe, maybe Wally World's closed. There's some sort of problem, it never fails. And especially when you look at, in, in situations, whether it's spiritual warfare, physical warfare, the advance can very well stall. And when that happens, it's a big deal. Because when events like that happen on the battlefield, it's what you call a turning point. For instance, there was a battle in the Civil War called the Battle of Fredericksburg. The Union Army was at the bottom of this great big hill called Marie's Heights. The Confederate Army had the top of that hill. The Union Army charged that hill, not once, not twice, not three times. They charged it nine times. And you would think after the first eight, they would say, this is not a good idea. The ninth time they tried, and they lost. The advance slowed. And so that's one way to handle an advance. You can keep trying but, but never make any progress. But sometimes if you look back in history, and maybe different wars and maybe a conflict you might recall at the Battle of, of D-Day in World War II, Allied forces had nowhere to go. 
But when the advance slowed, it changed. And that was a victory for the United States. And so the point is, when, when we face these problems, when we face these trials, the attitude that we have, the perspective that we have, the actions that we take, the wisdom in our actions, it all comes into play. But tonight, our lesson isn't going to focus a whole lot on all the, the little details. But instead, it's going to kind of try to remind us of that broad picture of somebody else who faced some trials. Somebody else who was a follower of God. Somebody in the Old Testament that maybe you've never heard about before who you might say faced an advance in his life. You might say his advance slowed as he was trying to, to serve God accordingly. And the story comes from Psalm chapter 73. Now in Psalm 73, above uh, some of your Bibles, you might have a, a subheading there. And my particular subheading there says a Psalm of Asaph. Anybody here ever heard of Asaph before? And some of us have. Until I read this particular Psalm, I hadn't. I hadn't. But Asaph was an interesting guy. We don't read a whole lot about him in the Old Testament as far as I'm aware. I could be wrong. I've been wrong once before and many other times. A whole lot more. So I could be wrong. But over in the book of 1 Chronicles chapter 15 and chapter 16 I know of at least in regards to not, not including the Psalms but in regards to other places in God's Word we read that Asaph was a Levite. And furthermore, if you look more closely in 1 Chronicles 15 and 16, if you get a chance to dig into that later this evening or throughout this week, you'll also read that he was a priest. And so in turn, if you think about a man who is a priest of the people of Israel, already your thinking of him might be kind of high. You know, if I were to walk up to you and say, I'm an elder or I'm a deacon, I'm not. But if I were to tell you that, you might think, oh, well, this is a... This is an upstanding individual, a person who is, who is a spiritual leader of his people, somebody who understands God's word, somebody who's a leader of sorts. That's the kind of man Asaph seemed to be, seemingly a good man. I mean, not just anybody could be a priest. And not only that, not only could you, did you have to be from the tribe of Levi, but not everybody from the tribe of Levi was a priest. So, so there were strict qualifications and then once you were a priest, well, there were even more strict qualifications on your conduct, what you had to wear, things you had to do. It's a big responsibility. And so this mighty man of God, it seems, is the one who wrote this psalm. And so as we prepare to read this psalm, we're going to read it in its entirety. I want you to think about the kind of man that this was. From what, what little we know about him, and you might be able to do more research. That there, There's probably all kinds of information out there. But in Psalm chapter 73, this is what Asaph had to say. Starting in verse 1, he said, Truly God is good to Israel, to such as are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pangs in their death, but their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like other men. Therefore pride serves as their necklace. Violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes bulge with abundance. They have more than their heart could wish. They scoff and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. They set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue walks through the earth. Therefore his people return here and waters of a full cup are drained by them. And they say, how does God know? And is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the ungodly who are always at ease. They increase in riches. 
Surely I have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I have been plagued and chastened every morning. If, if I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I would have been untrue to the generation of your children. When I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I understood their end. Surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. Oh, how they are brought to desolation as in a moment. They are utterly consumed with terrors. As a dream when one awakes, so Lord, when you awake, you shall despise their image. Thus my heart was grieved and I was vexed in my mind. I was so foolish and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold me by my right hand. You will guide me with your counsel and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none upon earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For indeed, those who are far from you shall perish. You have destroyed all those who desert you for harlotry. But it is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord God, that I may declare all your works. So we have Psalm 73. I like that psalm. I don't know if you've read that particular psalm before. If you have, well, consider this a refresher. If you haven't, if you're like me, I, I liked it right from the get-go. Because if you're like me and you read that psalm, I've been in his shoes before. You ever felt the way that Asaph has felt before? It's kind of interesting. You know, if we were to just stop and read half the psalm, it would be very depressing. Because what we read in this particular psalm is Asaph, before he even begins, addresses that he knows that God is good. So he tells his audience, hey, I know God is good. I know He's a good God. He says, truly, God is good to Israel, to such as are pure in heart. So he lets everybody know, hey, I, I'm not crazy. I'm not forsaking God. I'm not forgetting all the good that God has done. Now keep in mind, I think in Bible class we mentioned, Israel had a tendency to forget how good God is, didn't they? God would bless them and they would be thankful and then they would take it for granted and then they would... Forget about it, and they would want something else. I think it's in 1 Samuel 8, Israel wanted a king, right? Right after he, I think he delivered them from the Amalekites, maybe, or the Philistines. He delivered them from their enemies, and right after he delivered them, they cried out, after a very short time, hey, we want a king like everybody else. They were disappointed with Samuel's sons. They forgot God's blessings. When they got delivered out of Egypt, they got to the Red Sea. Well, God's just drug us out here to die. Then better if we died in Egypt and stuck out here in the wilderness. Israel had a tendency to forget their history. Whole nother lesson there. They had a tendency to forget. But Asaph wanted everybody reading this to know that he didn't forget. He knew that God was good to Israel. But in verse 2, he confesses that he nearly messed up. Verse 2 said, But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. You ever sat back in a chair, one of those kind of wheelie chairs at the office before, and you start to lean back, and it leans back a little bit farther than you thought, and you, and you panic, and you grab everything, and life flashes before your eyes because you think you're about to fall out of the back of the chair? You nearly, you nearly fell over. It's a scary feeling. 
even scarier, I guess, to go ahead and fall. But it's real scary when you catch yourself because you realize that could have been really bad. Or maybe when you put the car in drive, but it's actually in reverse. Or vice versa. And you accidentally bump into a garage door when it's your 18th birthday in a car that's not yours. You catch yourself. And it could have been a lot worse, but you stopped yourself. It's a scary feeling. Very scary. And Asaph confesses, despite being a Levite priest, he's saying, I almost stumbled, I nearly slipped. What seemed to be the problem? Well, he recognized the reality of the world around him. From verse 3 on down to verse 14, he speaks his woes. He recognizes all these problems, all these issues, and thus his, his spiritual life comes to kind of a, a, a slow. His growth seems to be hampered almost. It's like he's discouraged because what seems to be the problem? Well, if you look in verse 3, one word seems to sum it up. He grew envious. Now, the idea of being envious, if you envy something, you want something that's not yours that belongs to somebody else. Now, God is described as being a jealous God. So in the sense of God being jealous for us, we should want to be jealous for Him. But Asaph's envy, it was not a, what you might call a good envy. Now take that with a grain of salt. Envy is a dangerous thing. I'm not saying envy is good. But here in this context, Asaph was envying who? Well, verse 3 tells us, For I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the righteous. Those are the righteous people he was jealous of. It was when he saw the prosperity of the wicked. You ever felt that way before? Have you ever stopped and looked at how prosperous evil people are? You know, if you rob a bank tonight, you'd have a lot more money than you did before. And did you know if you robbed a bank, whether you got caught or not, you'd get free food, free housing for the rest of your life probably. Financially, it's not a bad deal. Just don't get hurt. Asaph saw this. He saw wicked people being very prosperous. Here he is, just a poor Levite priest. He's not living in a mansion. He's not rolling in the dough. He's not a televangelist raking in all kinds of dollars saying, Hey, call now, buy Miracle Spring Water. He's not getting all sorts of great financial gains. And he sees the wicked being very prosperous. Verse 4, he says, there seems to be, he says, there's no pangs in their death, for their strength is firm. He seems to be of the belief that even in death they have it made. Verse 5, he says, they're not in trouble as other men. They're not plagued like other men are. You ever seen evil people get off the hook when they deserve to be punished? You ever seen that before? November's coming up. Keep that in mind. You'll hear about it whether you know about it or not, no matter who it is. All the, the folks are digging up dirt as we speak. We see stuff like that. And how does that make you feel? I don't know about you, but it makes me mad. I pay taxes. I work hard. Why does somebody else who doesn't get off the hook more than me? That's not fair. He says they don't fall into trouble like other men. 
You ever hear of people getting in trouble and somebody gets them off the hook because they're just maybe they're powerful, they're well-to-do, they know the right people, but they're evil people. He goes on to say, verse 6, Therefore pride serves as their necklace. Violence covers them like a garment. They're violent people. But what are they? They're prosperous. That's not right. How can this be? They're not godly people. Verse 8, they scoff and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. That word there also means proudly. They speak proudly. Verse 9, they set their mouth against the heaven and their tongue walks through the earth. Some versions there say parades. Some versions say struts. Turkey season is coming upon us. Spring season. The toms, they strut. Simply put, why do they strut? Because they want to impress the other turkeys for whatever reason. They're proud. They're not trying to hide. And yet here there are these evil people. They, they set their mouth against the heavens. They parade through the earth. They don't hide their disrespect for God. They don't care. And just to, to drive that point home, verse 11, we read, And they say, How does God know? Verse 11, And is there knowledge in the Most High? Asaph sees this in the reality of the world around him. And he admits, I nearly slipped because of this. Because there's all these evil people who do not care about God. They talk badly about God, directly to God. And they have nerve to say, is there even knowledge up there? There is no God. And yet these are the very people who've got it made. Now, you may have not thought it out quite like that before. But if you've ever been driving home after work, and it's just not a good day. You get a lot of bad calls, whatever it is. That person you, you just don't like at work has been aggravating you all day. And you drive home and you just, maybe you're going to church. And you're thinking, why am I here? So-and-so's doing this. I go to church. I do good. And, and they get to go to a mansion and I have to go to whatever. Just that makes us mad. And Asaph is troubled by this. And he goes as far as to say in verse, or in verse 13, Surely I have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocence. Now keep in mind, he didn't fall in this trap. This is how close it got. That he was flirting with this thought that him serving God, his service to God, his obedience to the Lord, he was tempted to think it was a waste of time. Now, have you ever felt that way before? You know, in Luke chapter 9, Jesus says, If anybody desires to follow after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily. That doesn't sound like a very exciting deal physically, to deny self and allow myself to die spiritually, perhaps even physically. Doesn't seem like a good deal. And Asaph is questioning himself here. Maybe I've done all this in vain. Maybe, maybe my life devoted to God is a waste of time. Well, here's the thing. If you've ever thought that way, maybe you've, you've left church on a Sunday morning and came back on a Sunday night, or maybe you've gone throughout your work week and, and you've thought these thoughts, well, here's the solution. Here's the turning point. Verse 15, Asaph says, If... I had said, I will speak thus. Behold, I would have been untrue to the generation of your children. So he confesses, hey, I almost thought this way. 
because that's the reality of the world around me. But, but I didn't. And so now there's a beacon of hope. So again, if you've been in that situation before, you're trying to serve God and, and life is just not working out. I've been there. College was, is not always very exciting when you're studying and you're, and you're working hard. And I, and, and, I, and I went to my classes. I studied hard. I was no genius. That I can't assure you. Far from it. And I would try to go to church and I would try to do all these different things and, and I would get frustrated. And I would think, here you got you know, John Doe Thursday night... He's thirsty, so he's having a good time. And here I am Thursday night studying. Here comes Friday. Well, I've got to get ready for work Saturday to go to church Sunday just to do it all again. And it wears you down. And then, of course, when you get out of college, well, hey, bills are waiting for you. And so it's discouraging. And so Asaph says, hey, look, he says, though I struggle with all this, he recognized that if he fell into that trap, he would be betraying his people. And so in verse 16... He said, when I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me. You ever ask yourself the question, why do bad things happen to good people? And you try to answer that to somebody and you don't really know what to say. And, and you maybe just boil down to the fact that, well, sin's in the world and that's just how it goes. And Asaph here, not a dumb guy. He's not, he's not an unintelligent person. But yet in verse 16 he says, when I tried to understand it, it was just too painful. It was too hard. I couldn't figure it out. But yet in verse 17, until, until what? I went into the sanctuary of God. Asaph recognized that it wasn't until that he went to somebody who knew better than him that his whole perspective changed. Until he looked somewhere else his perspective was different. A change of perspective can change a lot for us, can it? You know, is the glass half empty or is it half full? Well, if you're the fly that's drowning in the bottom of the glass, it doesn't matter. But if you change your perspective and you can look at it, maybe it doesn't look so bad after all. And here Asaph changed his perspective. If you think about it from a military perspective, when you're in the fight, it's hard to tell what's really happening. You know, if you're in the middle of the battle, it's hard to tell what's happening two miles down the road. But if you can get an airplane and fly around, hey, you can get a better understanding of the big picture. And so here in verse 17, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I understood their end. Asaph seemed to recognize God's view here in life under the sun. He seemed to figure it out by simply turning to God. Now, there was another gentleman who had this same problem. We're not going to read everything he wrote, but if you ever heard of a guy named Solomon, he wrote a book called Ecclesiastes. Maybe my favorite book in the Bible. I really like it. But he was blessed with, with wealth and honor. He asked God for wisdom, and as a result, God gave him wisdom. And with that wisdom, he blessed him with riches and honor. And Solomon used those riches to pursue a lot of different things in life. Anything he saw, he did not withhold it from his hand. Anything as I saw, he bought it. Anything his ear heard, hey, I like that. Everything. He pursued everything. But there's one phrase he said over and over and over. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. 
He recognized that life without God was meaningless. But Luke, look at all the stuff they have. Look at all the wealth and the prosperity. Their death is painless. They got stuff. They lie, cheat, and they steal. So what? People love them for it. You know, there's TV shows. We, we like to, to glorify the bad guys. You know, that, that seems to kind of be, I, I notice you know, in, in some movies now, that starts to seem to be the new norm. Y'all you know, can almost predict. Well, any Hallmark movie, I can tell you how that's going to end. You can too. But it never failed to find, you know, if me and Dad watched a movie, we, I, we could, you know, even though it'd be good, we knew the good guy was going to win. But every now and then there was a movie where the bad guy won, and you thought, whoa, I don't like that. So they'd come out with a sequel, and then the good guy would win. But, but deep down, we seem to like the bad guy. And a lot of times in movies, that's what makes the bad guy so, so interesting, because he's appealing. There's something about him we like. Well, Asaph fell into that trap, but again, he did not fall for the trap because he recognized that when he drew close to God, his eyesight got a little bit better. He figured it out a little bit more clearly because in verse 18, he said, Surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. Oh, how they are brought to desolation as in a moment. They are utterly consumed with terrors. As a dream when one, when one awakes, so Lord, when you awake, you shall despise their image. He recognizes that God is just. And you might say, simply put, he remembered that God is real. When he drew close to God, when he went to the sanctuary of God, he was reminded that there is a God. And he is real. And here in these few verses, he reminds us that God is just. Even though man's standard of judgment may be one way, God's standard of judgment is true. There's no bribing God. Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6, down in verse 6. Paul wrote, Let him who is taught the word share in all good things with him who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. You cannot fool God. You recall Ananias and Sapphira? They had some land that they sold. And I'll just give it an arbitrary number. They, they say they sold it for $100. Well, here they come back to Peter and say, Hey, here's the $50 for the land we sold. We, got, we are giving you every penny. Peter said, No, 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 no. He said, You're not lying to me. You're lying to the Spirit. You've lied to Him. Can't trick God. Can't do it. We can trick man every day. Man's easy to fool. Genesis chapter 2, 3, right in there. We're easy to trick. I'm easy to trick. And here, though, Asaph remembers, hey, you can't trick God. God is just. Now, that's good and bad. Good because, well, if we belong to Him, go back to Galatians 6, it's worthwhile. But if we don't, well, Galatians 6, we reap what we sow. And so as Asaph goes on, verses 21, he says, Thus my heart was grieved, and I was vexed in my mind. I was so foolish and ignorant, I was like a beast before you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you, for you hold me by my right hand. You will guide me with your counsel and afterward receive me to glory. So it's here at this point in the story he recognizes after viewing the world around him, how discouraging it is, he needs God. And he confesses the fact, I was not right. 
I was in the wrong to think less of you, God. Now think about everything Israel had been through. And Asaph recognizes it was not good for me to think that way. You know, Israel had it pretty rough. If you go back to when they left Egypt, you know, it's hot. Imagine if you were told you've got to pick everything up and leave. Well, I'm going to tell you, I mean, if you were to tell me, hey, Luke, you know, pack up everything in your house, take what you need, and hike however far because there's a better land waiting. I might be excited at first, but that journey was tough. And if I were to have gotten to the Red Sea, knowing that the Egyptians are chasing me, I mean, logically, we've got a problem. There's no bridge. Can't build a bridge. I'm stuck. And then eventually later when they crossed it, they had a food shortage. So they got manna. They got tired of manna. You ever eat at the same restaurant every single day? Could you do it every single day? Could you eat the same restaurant, order the same meal every single day for the rest of, say, 40 years? be difficult. But yet Asaph recognized that these, these evil thoughts, these thoughts that I was falling into, I was not right to thank them. He says I was foolish and ignorant. I was like a beast. I was like a wild animal. I wasn't right to think that way. And so skipping down to verse 25 you could say he's made up his mind and he's letting everybody know it. He's remembering the aim of his charge. He's remembering his purpose in life. Verse 25, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none upon earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever goes on to say, For indeed those who are far from you shall perish, but have, you have destroyed all those who desert you for harlotry. But it is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord God that I may declare all your works. He made up his mind. When life got hard, he didn't choose to hang around with his personal thoughts. Which, are they wrong? I don't think so. And go back to what he was saying, I agree with everything he said. The wicked do seem to be very prosperous a lot of times. Sometimes it's the, the evil people that seem to have it made here on earth. And if we think that we've got it figured out and we fall into that trap, hey, it's very deceiving and it's a very slippery slope. But he made up his mind when he drew closer to God, when he put his faith in God, he seemed to start to, to figure some things out. He didn't toil with the question, well, why do bad things happen to good people then? Or, or why does this work out the way that it does? He didn't seem to get stuck in that trap. You know, have you ever got a flat tire before? Anybody? I have. I remember I was coming home from Lawrenceburg, Kentucky, a gentleman who's from up that way, a fine fellow. And when I was on my way home, I was rushing back. I was glad to head home because I had some more stuff I had to do. I had a great weekend, and not because I was running away from the fine fellow from Lawrenceburg. You may know who he is. Great guy. And as I was coming home, I pulled into my buddy's driveway, and I go to get in my truck, and there's a great big old bolt about that big stuck right in the side of the tire. It's like Rambo, just jammed it in there. No idea how it got the way that it did. 
tire completely flat, totally. And I could have sat there and thought, why does this happen? And I could have calculated it, and I could have, could have said, you know, if the, if, the, if the bolt, it's not a nail, it's a bolt, it's flat on both sides. You know, if I would have calculated, what are the odds of this? What force would it have to hit this rubber tire to puncture that tire? And at what point would that bolt have to be you know, rolling down the road to be aimed just right to hit my tire? Think how precise that was. God, why'd you let that happen? I just left some people that I go to church with. Going to meet some more fine church people. What, what for? Why? And I, could have, and I could have chewed all that over and calculated it out, but let's say I figured out the odds and, and how it all worked out and this is what it's done. What seems to be the problem? I've still got a flat tire. I haven't done anything. And so Asaph could have just kept spinning tires in the mud and why does this happen? Why is this happening? He doesn't forget about it, but he changes his perspective and recognizes regardless of why this happens, it's God who I need to value most. Why? Because he's the strength of my heart and my portion forever. He says, whom am I in heaven but you? He recognizes that God is his everything. That's what his life revolves around. He's made up his mind. And again, there's all sorts of other things to try in the world. Solomon, if, if you want to know the meaning of life, read the, read the book of Ecclesiastes. He tried everything. He, he has more money, had more money than I'm sure I will ever have. He had the means to try everything a man could try in his day and age. People might say, well, he didn't have all this technology. You're right, but he, the world doesn't change a whole lot. Ecclesiastes is a good book. It's a good book. But as the very end of that book ends, kind of similarly to this one, he recognizes at the end of Ecclesiastes, over at the end of that book in chapter 12, Ecclesiastes chapter 12, down in the last couple of verses, he said, Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is man's all. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. Some versions there in verse 13 say, Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is man's whole duty. Some versions word it that way. That's the purpose of life. That's the point of us living here on planet Earth. And though it might be tempting to fall into that trap, to get stuck in the, in, in, and bogged down in the fight that's ahead of us, if we, if we don't allow ourselves to fall in that trap and have a, a higher perspective, I'm convinced things can work out Work out. I'm not saying it's always going to be what you want physically. I'm not saying that this is a health and wealth. Hey, if you're a Christian, play the lottery. You're good. It's not my point. But spiritually and focusing on God, I'm confident life will work out in the end. We sing a song sometimes. It's number 230, I think, in your songbook. It may not be, but I think we have the same songbook as you all. It's just a different color. It's by Albert Brumley. And it's this world is not my home. I'm just passing through. It says my treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. As we sing that song, we're singing that. We're not saying that. We're singing, hey, I'm just a tourist here. This is temporary. He's focused on something greater. Well, here Asaph had that figured out too. So may we seek to put our trust in the Lord so that we might declare His works.
May we seek to recognize that God is the strength of our heart. So that though when we do fail, we can trust in Him. We can look to Him. We can follow Him. And I know that's a lot easier said than done. It's a lot easier said than done. You know, if you ever look back at a football game and, and somebody says, well, this is what they should have done and they would have won the game. Does that just drive you crazy? Especially if it's your team that lost. And, you know, maybe I'm sure Coach Calipari for UK, I'm sure he hears that a lot. This is what you should have done, Coach. You should have done this and it would have been right. Well, it's a lot different when you're in the game, right? You know, in military history books, that, I love reading that kind of stuff, and it, it just grinds my gears when somebody says, well, General so-and-so should have done this, and he would have succeeded. And I'm just like, that's, a, that's a really easy for you to say, having all the facts, all the figures, and it just makes so much sense. But when we're in the thick of the fight, it can be hard. Again, think like Asaph. When things aren't going good, think like Job. It's hard to see the end of the tunnel. It's hard to see the big picture. It's difficult. But it is worthwhile. So may we as Christians recognize who our focus should be, where our focus should be. If you're here tonight and you're a Christian and you've struggled with that, hey, you're not alone. Asaph was a follower of God. He struggled. I know I've struggled with it, so there's at least two. And I bet there's more people here who've had those same types of thoughts. Well, may this encourage us not to fall into that trap. May this encourage us to make up our mind in such situations. To say, hey, we need God. He is who we want more than anything. I mean, he's the one we're striving for in heaven, right? I mean, that's the goal. Not because there's no sickness. I mean, hey, that's great. Or not because there might be folks we know. Hey, that's great. Our goal is heaven because, hey, that's where he is. That's who we are imitating. That's who we want to be like. May we have our minds made up. And so if you're here and you aren't a Christian, you'd like to change that tonight. Or maybe you're here and you'd like some prayers of encouragement. I would encourage you to, to take advantage of our time together if you do so while we stand and while we sing the song of invitation.